Podcast. I am your host, Ronnie Swintech. Thank you for joining me. Today, one of our three guests is Baden Evans, the co-owner of a sensational new restaurant in Katoomba called Tempest. Baden is an up-and-coming restaurateur, and we'll chat to him about all things food, drink, and other fun and yummy things. Our second guest is Caro Ryan from Lots of Fresh Air. Caro is a bush safety expert with the National Parks and Wildlife Service and the State Emergency Service. She's also a straight-talking blogger, also a podcaster with her own show, Rescued, and is a passionate believer in the benefits of experiencing nature. Our first guest today is Gary Hayes. Gary has been taking photographs since the early 80s and loves capturing emotive landscapes and travel photography. He has his own studio and gallery, and also runs a range of creative photography workshops. Welcome, Gary. Thank you. Now, you've lived in the UK and in the US. Tell us about the journey about getting to Australia and the Blue Mountains. Um, yeah, so I, I actually worked at the BBC and left the BBC in 2003 and decided to head off around the world looking for somewhere to live. It was literally that sort of decision. I actually visited the Blue Mountains on one of those day trips. Mm-hmm. Went, no, this is a nice place. And Mm. I think it sowed the seed because I then went back to live in America, Santa Barbara, Montecito. And um, some chap went, do you fancy working at the Australian Film TV Radio School? And I said, "Um, okay, I'll um, I'll pop over and uh, we'll have a talk about that. And then I actually got headhunted, full visa and everything, to come and live and work in Australia. Wow. I suppose that seed back in the day suddenly sprung and I went, let's go and live up there, you know, because it's an amazing place. So what was the leap to photography? Well, I've always done photography, right, you know, 12 years old, I was developing black and white film under the stairs in the house. Wow. When I um, came to the Blue Mountains, I I didn't actually think, oh, right, I'm going to do photography now. I started to share things on social media and then, you know, people kept, saying, oh, that's amazing, stunning. And then um, I started to license images, and it it really took off in quite an organic way. Mm. It wasn't intentional as such. I didn't come up here to be a photographer. Mm. It just kind of happened. And now I've got to the point where I'm autumn workshops. I'm running them every two days from Saturday this week. Yes. For two weeks. It's just gone crazy in terms of the amount of workshops I'm doing particularly. You were talking before that you do a workshop about the sky at night and constellations and things like that. How does that work? Well, um, 
people come round to my studio gallery at six o'clock in the evening, usually on a Fridays, because I try and make it sort of time friendly for Sydney people. And then we go on until three, four o'clock in the morning. Wow. But in terms of how it works, it's, you know, lots of instruction, how, how to take photographs of the night sky, technically, and then we just go from location to location, often stumbling around in the dark with our little headlamps, finding great foregrounds, you know, so in um, things like Hartley Pioneer Village is a nice little one. It's got some rocks, it's got some old buildings like the courthouse, really nice foregrounds to get the the Milky Way core over the top of it. Wow. And um, yeah, people... People love it. Now, your photos have been used by Australia Post um, to illustrate stamps. How did they come about and what photos were they? Oh, that was a good while ago. But they, I think, found me on Flickr, which is a, an old photo sharing site. People mm-hmm. still use it. I, I kind of stopped using it, really. But they just contacted me. I was like, hello, Australia Post here. And we really like your photograph from Govett's Leap. Can we use it? I can't remember the denomination, a $3 stamp or something. Um, and I went, sure. And um, and then they came back a year later and, and chose another one, which I think was Prince's Rock in Wentworth Falls, which is the, one of the lookouts over Wentworth Falls. Yeah. Well, you were talking about you're in the midst of doing autumn workshops. Best autumn leave locations? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, the Blue Mountains is, because of the altitude here, um, and it gets quite cold at night, it, it sort of varies the best locations, usually from... Mid-March, right through to mid-May, we get a whole range of different areas colouring up at different times. Mm-hmm. So it's usually down in Lura area, Everglades, and then through Katoomba. Uh, Blackheath is usually around mid to late March where the streets start to colour up. Yep. So Blackheath's great, but I, I always recommend people, you know, head up to Mount Wilson, which is the probably autumn central. And that's usually from mid to late April, right through to mid-May. Um, both the streets there are really nice, particularly because they haven't got those horrible white lines down the middle, which is much better for photography. Mm-hmm. And of course, you've got the gardens, um, yes. which are very um, well subscribed. Um, now, you're pressed for time. If I'm pressed for time in the Blue Mountains and not in great shape, where is the best place to take an awesome landscape photo? The Jameson Valley, all the lookouts there are easy to drive up to. So Cliff Drive runs from really all the way from Lura right up to the the other side of Katoomba. So if you just follow Cliff Drive, I think there's something like 50-odd lookouts where you can literally just park the car, walk about five or ten minutes and get a great view Mm. into the valley with Mount Solitary in the middle of the valley. Um, And if you're lucky, you can get some gorgeous mist sitting in the bottom of the the valley. Obviously, Echo Point is well known and that's, that's like the number one spot to go to. But there's so many other places. There's some great ones in Lura. What about Wentworth Falls? Any you would recommend there? Yeah, well, you can park at the main Wentworth Falls car park and then just walk in. I think I mentioned the stamp, uh, Prince's Rock, mm-hmm. is um, is a great view both into the valley itself. You've got a lovely escarpment on the left, and if you sort of look to the left, of course, you can see Wentworth Falls in its entirety, the, the two drops of Wentworth Falls. Mm. So Prince's Rock is only probably requires a, a bit of a puff on the way back. It's only only probably 10 minutes walk down the track and just go slow on the way back on most of these trails. Are these places you'd also recommend for sunrises and sunsets? Yeah, so sunrises and sunsets, really, obviously, you need to be looking east and west. The mm-hmm. problem with the 
Jameson Valley is that all the lookouts look south. So, so <laughs> Don't the, go there for sunsets well, and sunrises. Well, you can. You can get out on the promontories on the, the you know, the bit sticking out, sort of like Sublime Point, mm-hmm. which gives you views east and west. Um, Narrow Neck is a great spot I recommend to people. Um, so you can uh, – Narrow Neck Road got a little bit damaged, but there's a now walking – a special walking route that National Park's built – and that is a fantastic way to do sunrises and sunsets because you're looking east and west, looking mm-hmm. east across the Jameson. And that's some of my, when I do workshops, I often take people there in the, in the, for sunrises mm-hmm. and then looking west for sunsets. Um, but usually Blackheath is a great little spot because when you turn from Katoomba, you then go north and south. So everything's, you know, the great Makes western sense, yes. goes north and uh, yeah. goes east and what you can see east and west. So. Govert's Leap is about to reopen, and that's a fantastic sunrise spot. Literally drive up, and they've just redone the car park. And I think they've even got wheelchair access now. So you can park the car, you know, wheel to the the rails, and you've got one of the best views of the Gross Valley. Yeah. Um, There are lots where you you have to walk about 15, 20 minutes to get to some non-railed areas, and that's obviously where I take uh, more hardy photographers who uh, actually want um, quite wild-looking foregrounds yes. as opposed to railings. And things. Yes. Um, your favourite spots in the Blue Mountains? At the moment, um, well, I suppose two key areas. One of them is the Northern Grouse. So that's um, Bells Liner Road, which is the road that's sort of parallel to the Great Western. And there are lots of little walks onto the Northern Rim. And um, they're, they're about one, two kilometres. So that's one of my favourites, mainly because there's usually no one else there. And that's usually a thing for me. I just like having, you know, wild areas to myself. Mm-hmm. And and I recommend people go there. Midweek, you can do any of those trails, um, even the more popular ones like Walls Lookout and Rigby Hill, uh, Pierce's Pass. These are all uh, and Mount Banks, uh, Mount Banks um, Summit Trail as well. These are all park your car and it's a nice, you know, proper walk that's yep. been built. Um, and the other area as well, which is not not officially Blue Mountains, is, is more in the Gardens of Stone area, the, the wonderful pagoda country, which is not really that explored. Oh. And I do explore those on my Hidden Blue Mountains workshops. So. Are you going to tell us where they are? Well, they're all over the place. There's, um, In fact, it's just been turned into a conservation area. Um, you've probably heard of places like Lost City, mm-hmm. which I think has just had a big grant to turn it into an ecotourism area. But beyond there, there's, there's all these big, uh, large areas, pagodas, that do look like Lost Cities. They're sort of pyramid-shaped things with all these striations on. Wow. And... You know, in the right light, golden light in the morning or evening. Sounds amazing. They, they look like sort of Angkor Wat or some yeah, yeah. Um, sort of city Mayan temples and things like that. So Sounds incredible. Yes. Now, if people don't have time or don't have the equipment or just don't have the interest but want to hang a framed print on their wall to remind them of the Blue Mountains, where can they get one captured by Gary Hayes? Easiest way is just to go to garyphayes.photography. Enter that into your browser and it will pull up my website. And on the top menu there, all the galleries, everything from birds through to sunrises and sunsets. Um, even There's even a middle-of-the-day gallery because you can take some nice photographs of waterfalls, astrophotography, nebula, all sorts of things there. Do you have a studio that people can physically go to? Yes, I've got a gallery in Mount Victoria. It's, it's really a, a, a very boutique one, quite a small one, but I've got a you know, several hundred 
framed images there. And that's right next to Pulpit Rock in Mount Victoria. So don't get it confused with the big Blackheath one. <laughs> so you just follow the brown signs to Pulpit Rock. It takes mm -hmm. you right outside the gallery. And you'll usually at weekends, when I'm not busy with workshops, you will see the sign outside, uh, temporary sign. But certainly check Google and Facebook as regards the opening times. Okay. Gary Hayes, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you. Cara Ryan is a straight-talking blogger from Lots of Fresh Air, bush safety expert and passionate believer in the benefits of experiencing nature. Caro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Ron. It's great to be here. You're traipsing along a bush track, okay, enjoying the beautiful scenery, as you do, because there's so much beautiful scenery in the Blue Mountains. So much. And you come face to face with the funnel web spider or snake. <laughs> Is screaming the best option? What do you do? I like that you're saying you there because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I tend not to be a screamer when it comes to, to that kind of stuff, Ronnie. But, you know, I, I guess the first thing to, is to stop. Mm -hmm. Stop where you are and be absolutely still. But the thing with snakes is they generally don't want to hurt you. They don't want to attack you. And if they do, if they do sort of go to lash out, it's because they're just feeling threatened. Of course. You know, so we want to do what we can to make them feel unthreatened. Yes. You know, so by standing still, you're almost becoming invisible. And it gives you a second to just think, you know what, I'm just going to think through this rather than jump, rather than, you know, create some motion or some sound because... Most people don't realise snakes are kind of deaf. Okay. Yeah. So what I like to do is if I am in an area that feels like overgrown, especially in the heat of summer or on a hot mm -hmm. day when you kind of think, oh, there might be a few of these little, you know, slippery jakes or in, in canyoning we like to call them nope ropes. Yes. A few of these nope ropes hanging around. Um, I actually tend to walk quite heavily. Mm -hmm. through an area, like create a bit of vibration uh -huh. on the ground. Uh -huh. And that lets snakes know, hey, you're coming through. Oh, that sounds big and not kind of the thing I want to interact with. So snakes will generally, you know, start to move away and out of out of range. But if they do go to, you know, rear up and attack, it's because they're, they've been shocked or frightened and they're not expecting to see you there in their home having a nice little sunbake on a rock. And let's not forget that that is their home. Exactly, exactly. Caro, you're so passionate about the bush and you do work with the NPWS and the SES. What started this passion for you with the bush? Uh, Ronnie, how long have you got? <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in an outdoorsy family. We never went camping as kids. Right. Um, occasionally we'd do little bushwalks down the back, you know, after Mother's Day or a big, you know, Christmas or Easter celebration to walk off the big roast dinner. Of course. Of course. It was, so it was probably in my 20s when I read an article in the Herald about an, a journalist who'd been taken on the Mount Solitary circuit, so down into the Jamison Kadumbo and up over Mount Solitary and Beautiful. around to Ruin Castle. Absolutely stunning. And it, that's the thing. He talked about the experience being... Um, transformative and mm. taking him, pushing him physically, but seeing things he'd never had the opportunity to see before. But what it tapped into more than anything for me was 
this sense of adventure and discovery and exploration. And as a kid, I'd loved Enid Blyton books. You know, mm-hmm. I'd loved The Folk of the Faraway Tree and, yep. you know, those stories of kids on their adventures into the, the forest as you did in the UK, you know. Yes. And I thought, I want that discovery. I want that adventure. I want that, ooh, does this tree talk to the other trees? Ooh, I want to go up and discover new lands. And that, to me, is still exactly how I feel about the bush today. I can step off the concrete down at Echo Point. I can go down the giant stairs or along the Prince Henry clifftop walk, and I can find myself transformed and transported to another place. Wow. And that's how a lot of people feel when they come to the Blue Mountains Mm. and they look at the beautiful scenery that is around here because, as you say, it is transformative. Absolutely. And, you know, there's science behind it too. It's not just, oh, this is really pretty and it's green and it's lush and I live in a concrete jungle at home. It's It's not just about that. So there's science that talks about the benefits to your mental health is massive. In fact, Mm. there was a report just released this week um, talking about prescribing um, doses of nature, so wow. actually as a as a medical prescription. And the great thing is, there's so many different ways of doing it. You know, it's you don't have to be super hardcore and you know want to sleep on the ground. I always say to people, it doesn't matter whether you just get out of your car and walk, you know, 100 metres along a little bush track to a lookout. Yes. Or you go and spend two weeks climbing mountains, you know, being completely self-sufficient. One's no better than the other. Yeah. They're just different, but they're all about connecting us to these natural places, connecting us in meaningful ways that are meaningful for us. Okay, so... I get engrossed in the gorgeous scenery and I stop to take a bunch of photos and after a while I realise I've gone down the wrong track and I'm lost. What do I do? Do you know what the UK, what they teach their soldiers in the SAS is that if you ever found yourself lost, just sit down and make a cup of tea. Okay. What if I didn't bring the teapot, Billy? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But but when you actually break break down what they're asking of you, making a cup of tea, or in this case for us, we're just out in the bush and we find ourselves not where we think we are, is to stop. You know, and so the purpose of making a cup of tea was, A, to get someone to stop because you've got to stop, you've got to pull the things out of your your pack, you've got to light a little fire, you've got to make, you know, that kind of thing. So really what they're doing is stopping. They're hydrating, so they're having something to drink. Mm -hmm. They're, by, you know, boiling this kettle that the soldiers would have had, they would have had to wait, you know, five, ten minutes for that process. So what that does, which is what we can learn from it, is to stop and calm ourselves down. Makes sense. Yeah, exactly, right? So sit down, find yourself a nice little boulder and that important thing of just don't panic. Mm -hmm. And think back to when was the last time that you knew where you were. Okay. And if you think, well, actually, I reckon that was only about five minutes ago, like it wasn't long ago or ten minutes ago. And if you think you know which direction that was, I think a good idea is to take a look at your watch and say you go, okay, well, it's now... 11 Uh o'clock, I'm going to, for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to go back down that track and think, you know, I think that's where it is. I'm going to go for 15 minutes and see if I can, you know, find myself again. Yes. Either you go, oh, yeah, this is, oh, yeah, I see where I went wrong. Yep. That little track that I wanted to take is perhaps a little overgrown. Yep. That's where I should be. Uh Okay. That's that's the good thing, right? Uh If you've gone for 15 minutes and you haven't found where you were hoping to find again, that's your opportunity to stop again. Uh uh Yeah. Yes. There's no rush. So you've got a couple of choices at that point. And again, 
by being calm and chilled, you're going uh-huh. to more likely to have a great, great outcome. Yeah. So you can either go, you know, well, that wasn't the right way for me to go. Maybe I try a different direction on the track for another 15 minutes, mm-hmm. you know. But set yourself that little, you know, um, it's almost like putting a little uh, um, a playpen around yourself again by, yep. by giving another time, like another 15 minutes, you know. And say, look, if I haven't found myself on the track where I should be in 15 minutes, that's it. I'm going to then, you know, decide whether or not I raise my hand like you would in the ocean, you know. Yes. If you, if you, if, yeah, exactly. If you find yourself out of your depth in the ocean or I'm actually going to try one more time, uh-huh. 15 minutes, you know. And those decisions, I think, are also linked to how experienced you are as a, as a bushwalker, as a hiker. With some bushwalks, you have to actually let people know where you're going, don't you? You have to notify the national parks people. Is that correct? Well, let's let's look at that acronym for yes. preparing, okay? So it's part of this amazing campaign which came out of the Blue Mountains, and it's now a New South Wales-wide um, campaign, and I think it might even be sort of um, spreading further around Australia. It's called the Think Before You Trek. So that's T-R-E-K. Now, the T-R-E-K is an acronym for T, for take what you need, and that's everything you need. That's food, that's water, snacks. You've got some warm layers of clothes. You've got um, all of this in a backpack. You're wearing the right shoes. You're not going to be in your high heels down in the bush. Good Lord, Or no. your little Slip-ons, you know, um, you might have a raincoat. That's a really great idea, especially up here because it's so changeable. Mm-hmm. Got everything you need to set yourself up for success. So that's the T, right, of mm-hmm. trek. Then the R is register your intentions. So that's what you were talking about there in terms of telling someone where you're going. Now, mm. I think the R, register your intention sounds a bit fancy, but really it's just, hey, tell someone where you're going. You can tell your your mates, someone who's not coming out with your family, someone who, someone who loves and cares for you, put mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. So register your intentions. There is a more formal way of doing that. So if you even Google think before you trek, you'll be taken to the National Parks website. They have an online trip intentions form, which is awesome. So that goes into a lot of detail. And that kind of thing is really good if you're doing a more experienced or more remote kind mm-hmm. of a trip. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you're going and doing the six foot track or you're going down into the into one of the valleys, like the Jamison Valley or the Gross Valley, Megalong, those kind of things. So you're mm-hmm. putting a lot of detail in there. E emergency communications. Okay. Now, one thing you'll 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 find for us up here in the mountains because of our geography. Mm. Um, we're on a ridge. <laughs> we are on a we're <laughs> on a really big long ridge all the way from, you know, the the Nepean at Penrith all the way up to Mount Victoria. And on both sides of this ridge drops off into these valleys that mm. I was talking about. And quite often in these valleys, these beautiful nooks and crannies where we find waterfalls and rainforest walks and beautiful places like that, like the Grand Canyon Walk mm. out of Mount um, out of Evans Lookout, out of Blackheath. We drop out of mobile phone coverage. And then you, no matter how high you stick your phone in the air, you're not getting any coverage. Exactly, exactly. So because we lack that mobile phone coverage, it gets really tricky to actually be able to, you know, raise your hand and ask for help. You can't even make a call to get out. You can't even text friends. So that E for emergency communications is having a way to communicate when you're out of mobile phone reach. And how do you do that? Well, there are a bunch of devices that you can rent 
rent, you can buy or you can borrow. So they're called PLBs, so personal locator beacons. So some people might think they're called EPIRBs. It's the same sort of device, but an EPIRBs for the marine, it's being for out in the ocean. Uh-huh. So a PLB, personal locator beacon, they're really, really quite small, about the same size as your mobile phone or even smaller. And what it does is it uses satellite communication. Ah. Ah, so rather than tapping into that mobile phone network, it goes bigger and broader than that and, and communicates via satellite. So now one thing to think about, though, is even though you might be feeling a little bit lost and it might not be a life-threatening emergency at that point in time, you've got to be able to think through, well, at what point does it become a life-threatening emergency? So say you've got someone in your party who takes regular medication uh-huh. and they don't have enough or they don't have that with them and then they need it. Well, that then can become an escalate, you know. Of course. The great thing is if you do push the button on one of these PLBs, we know exactly, we have it geolocated, we know where that's going off, so a helicopter can be sent. Mm. So there's there's other ways too with emergency comms, so there's that way, that's the one the one button, one job kind of thing. Yep. Um, and then there's other devices which are um, two-way communication, so there's a, a range of different ones out there. There's the common one in the market you'll find is called an InReach, another one is a Zolio, that's an Australian company who's put that out, and again, they use satellite, but you can talk two-way, so you can say, ah. hey... So you send a text message. It's not it's not voice message, but it's text message. You can say, "Hey, Ronnie, I'm a bit late. Um, I've you know I've twisted my ankle. I'm I'm okay. I'm moving slowly, but I'll be late by about four hours. I'm okay. okay. You know, and then you go, "Oh, hey, thanks, Caro. Um, I won't worry now, but I'll I'll come and drive to the, the trailhead and I'll come and pick you up when you get there. Yeah. Do you need me to come down and help you walk out? Yeah, yeah that all kind that of, sort of all stuff. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then finally that K, know your route and stick to it. Do your research before you go. If you're staying at an accommodation, um, B&B or hotel, all those kind of things, a lot of them have some suggested walks for you. And you know what's great is there's a National Parks app that is free to download and it has all the tracks in the area up here and you can find, um, look at photos, look at the difficulty of it, look at how long it's going to take and you can make really wise choices. And make sure you even tell the hotel or wherever you're staying exactly. where you're going as well. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Now, Cara, tell me about your navigational tours and educational programs. Yeah, so I, I love navigation. I love navigating in the bush. To me, navigation in the bush, it's about mindfulness. And it might sound a little bit woo-woo, but to me, being able to navigate is about reading the land. It's about reading country. It's about reading land forms and bringing your whole self into the bush with all of your five senses. What do I see? What do I feel? What do I hear? And slowing down to be present, to notice things. Because to me... Navigating and moving through the bush is about deep awareness. Uh-huh. So I teach yeah, the normal map and compass kind of course. But yes, yeah, so I, I have a two-day introduction to navigation where we do deep dives into reading a map. And this is topographic maps. So wow. all those fabulous contours and uh, colours and symbols yeah. and all those things, being able to interpret that, uh-huh. being able to interpret that to the land, like to countries. So it's like it's seeing the shapes on the two-dimensional map represented in the three-dimensional landscape around you. And so you go, oh, I see where I am. Oh, this is this creek that I'm standing on right now. And oh, that's that big mountain in front of me. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then 
how do you get from, you know, from the creek to the mountain to, yeah, A to B, using a compass, so a bunch of different compass techniques and putting that all into practice. So, yeah, it's a two-day course, Introduction to NAV, and there's also a a, a level two and a more advanced course, which is a lot of time on the ground, a lot of time out there in the bush, and um, it's just wonderful. I love watching the light bulbs go on. People go, oh. Tell me about how we can get in touch with you if we want to do one of your courses and all the other things you do because you're a podcaster as well. You have a, a new podcast called Rescued. I do, yeah. So um, there's there's a bunch of different ways you can get in touch. Um, the website's probably the main one, so lotsoffreshair.com. So that's Lotsa, L-O-T-S-A, as opposed to lots of, so lotsoffreshair.com. That's loaded, loaded with... Um, how-tos for bushwalking and hiking, you know, how to adjust a pack, how to know what to pack. There's packing lists you can download for free, um, things to take, how to prepare, places to go, where to be inspired to go bushwalking, all that kind of stuff is in the website. Um, social media as well, same handle for Instagram and Facebook. Um, and the Rescued podcast is called uh, Rescued, an outdoor podcast for hikers and adventurers, and that's on, you know, all your podcast platforms. Where can we do your courses? So I partner with the great folk at the Blue Mountains Climbing School. So you can find them at climbingschool.com.au. And I think there's the tab is for bushwalking and then there's uh, navigation courses, intro and level two. Awesome. Kara Ryan, thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Ronnie. Great to be here. Baden Evans is a co-owner of the new Tempest restaurant in Kituba. But you're not a chef. I'm not a chef, no. So how do you know good food? I've worked in hospitality for quite a while, um, so I've eaten lots of good food. Whereabouts did you work? I started off in Wollongong, just working in clubs and bars and stuff. Um, and then I worked up here at Lure Garage for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I did a little stint um, working in Cyprus at a really nice restaurant wow. over there. Uh, and then, yeah, back here to Tempest and a few little moments here and there at other little venues. You seem so young. Thank you. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure you're young. How did the whole Tempest come about? Give us an insight into the restaurant. Um, so it just sort of came about a friend of ours, um, so myself and Louise and Jason, who are the other owners. Um, a mutual friend sort of just put us in touch and said, I think you guys all have similar ideas about what good food is and good service and good wine. Maybe you want to open up a place together. And we all just went for a beer at the Alex one day. And it kind of just happened from there, to be honest. I have been to Tempest. I really enjoyed the flavours there. It's a shared menu. Yeah. Give us some more insight into it. So the whole idea, I guess, we all really like that concept of shared food you know, that real experience of sitting around a table and, oh, can you pass me this and can you pass me that? And like, oh, you should taste this. This is fantastic. And like, and how often have we done that in restaurants Yeah, before shared food came along? Yeah, exactly. It's what people are doing anyway. And I think it's really nice. It's certainly the way that we all like to dine. Um, we'd much prefer that than just sort of like, oh, this is my little plate of food. I'm going to eat it. And you have your little plate of food mm. and you eat it. I think it's a really nice experience and it allows people to kind of communicate and chat and share and stuff. So I think that's really important. Now, Tempest operates as a a cafe during the day. Um, You do breakfasts? Yeah, so um, Tempest Up Early, which is our kind of cafe espresso bar, um, Enterprise operates just weekdays, Mm -hmm. um, and so 6 till 12. So it's sort of like a breakfast brunch vibe, I guess. Part of what we kind of wanted to approach with that is that, you know, if you want to share, share. 
Um, it's not strictly the type of food that you have to have my plate and your plate. Um, mm-hmm. So share plates are very much available. And all of the dishes, while you know, they could all be very comfortably eaten for one, um, if you want to grab two of them and share, why not? You know, What can I have for breakfast at Tempest? So one of our mainstays, which is probably one of our most popular, um, we have a um, house-made hash brown. Um, and then that's served with our house cured trout and a bit of horseradish cream um, and a little uh, egg. Yum. So that one's really lovely. And again, you could share that quite nicely. Mm. Um, but quite a few. We've got um, a selection of different borax, which is a type of like a Middle Eastern pastry. So we do a beef, pine nuts and parsley one, which is kind of like that spiral with the pastry around Yum. it. A really nice spinach and feta one. And then a really nice vegan one with... Um, Mushrooms and heaps of herbs and, um, yeah, all sorts of stuff in there, which is beautiful. How are your staff part of the overall visitor experience when they come to the Blue Mountains? Uh, It's been good. We're very fortunate to be based in the Blue Mountains. A, working in tourist spaces are really lovely because when people come to visit you, they're already in a good mood because they're on holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really opens it up for you to just kind of carry on that energy with them. Um, and there's nothing better than, you know, a table comes into the cafe or to the restaurant and they're just so excited. They've just been to the Three Sisters for the first time or, you know, they've been to Grand Canyon and they're like, oh, oh my God, this place is amazing. It's incredible. Mm. We're having mm. such a lovely time. And yeah. so to be able to kind of help um, enhance that experience for them is really lovely and be a, you know, oh, if you really love that, well, you should go check out this lookout. You should go do this walk. Um, and to help kind of create that experience for them is really lovely. Um, but on the flip side of that, you know, we have such a lovely local community. Um, and so it's really nice to see the same kind of familiar faces coming in, yeah. you know, week after Developing week relationships. or day after day. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, how are the kids or how did your art exhibition go or different things like that. Um, yeah. You know, so there's a really nice balance, I think, of that in Kasumba that maybe you don't get in a lot of other places. Where do you like to eat in the Blue Mountains, apart from Tempest? Apart from Tempest. <laughs> um, quite a few places. Um, it really depends, I guess, what I'm looking for. Um, I'm very partial to a little black cockatoo pastry, um, oh, as I think we all are. That's um, just down the road from you. It's just down the road, um, and they're good friends of ours, so it's nice to just be able to pop by and grab a coffee and, you know, grab a croissant and go sit at a lookout or something. I'm very partial to Tibet Kitchen. I don't know if you've been um, I haven't the been there, but Katoomba. I see it and I keep thinking, I've got to go there. What is involved in Tibetan food? Um, look, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on Tibetan food, um, <laughs> but certainly what they sell there is a lot of momos, um, so like small dumplings, so you can get them fried or for, uh, like steamed, um, and they're fantastic. They come with really lovely sauces, and then they do a lot of um, traditional Tibetan soups, so they're kind of like broth-based soups. They're very hearty, um, lots of kind of vegetables and noodles and stuff in them, and I think especially on these kind of autumnal days oh, yeah. and these colder days, it's a beautiful place to go sit with friends and kind of have that really hearty food and look out at the mist and, you know, be warm and cozy. And the service there is always really lovely. That's that's part of the wonder of the Blue Mountains in the colder seasons, isn't Absolutely. it? It's, it's being warm and cozy with the food. Yeah. Oh, I think so for sure. And like, yeah, it's a really nice experience and it leans into that, you know, slow mountains day, especially if, you know, you woke up and you're like, oh, I want a beautiful day and I want to go to a lookout. You know, instead of getting disappointed that it's misty, you go, oh, I'm just going to lean into what the Blue Mountains has to offer on a misty day, you know, troll the antique shops and then pop by and, you know, have a really hearty meal. So yeah, yeah. I think that's great. Now, you're studying at uni, is that correct? Yes, it is. And what are you studying there? I'm doing a Master's of Urban Design. Oh, okay. So that's a little different from um, restauranting? A little bit. Not, <laughs> not entirely. Um, but, yeah, it's certainly a step 
away. Um, so I did my undergrad was in um, ecology and conservation biology. Oh, wow. Um, which obviously is very Blue Mountainsy, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, but my minor was in sustainable communities. Um, so it's kind of, which, you know, obviously then leads into urban design, but it's all about kind of how we create our spaces and how we create those spaces to work for the people who live in them how we can do that in a way that's sustainable um, and functional at the same time. Well, since you're so into urban design, where would you stay in the Blue Mountains? Where would I stay? Um, that's always a hard one, I guess, as someone who lives here because you don't often think about it. But um, when my family come up, uh, they'll often stay at um, one of the little motels kind of in the centre of town there. Um, there's quite a few good places all sort of within walking distance, which are really nice. Of Katoomba. Of Katoomba mm-hmm. um, or Lura or sort of, you know, I think most of the towns have at least one or two little places kind of near to the centre. And that's always really lovely because, you know, sometimes when you go on holidays, you don't want to spend the whole time sitting in the car and driving around. Looking for a parking like spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, but there's definitely a lot of um, more premium places if you're after a, uh, a fancy experience. I worked at the Carrington for a while and it's a, um, a fantastic old building, as I'm sure. It's stunning. You know? um, yes. So that's always, I think, you know, leaning into that Blue Mountains experience we were talking about before. It really takes you to that that other world and, you know, you can go in and have a little cocktail by the fire or mulled wine or, you mm. know, tea and scones in the lobby and just sort of, you know, experience that old world grandeur and that coziness of, I think, what the Blue Mountains has to offer, which is really nice. Totally. Now we're coming into the colder seasons, autumn and winter. What is Tempest going to be offering on the menu or is it too early? Um, Never too early, um, but it changes quite a lot. So we'll definitely lean into more of those um, cozier, heartier meals, I would say. Um, So we try and keep our whole offering seasonal. We change menu items sort of pretty much every week um, and keep it on a slow rolling menu. So certainly all of the, um, any winter vegetables that are seasonal, certainly your heartier meat style dishes, I think will make an appearance. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll transition the wine list through away from some of those spring summer wines into a few more. Don't lose the rosé. Heartier, we definitely won't lose the (laughs) rosé. Um, but transition into a few more of those heartier reds and fuller-bodied whites and things like that to kind of um, match with the food offering and stuff like that. So mm. I think that's hopefully where we'll be able to head in that space. Looking forward to that. Baylin Evans from Tempest, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Visit the Blue Mountains, a podcast produced by Blue Mountains Tourism. This episode was produced by Ellen Hill. Episode editor was David Post, recorded at KFM Media Studios. Music was composed by Rusty Pedal Music. The Welcome to Country was delivered by David King. And I'm Ronnie Swintek. And thanks for joining us. This podcast is made possible by $2.6 million from the Bushfire Local Economic Recovery Fund, co-funded by the Australian Government and New South Wales Government. With the Grant Blue Mountains Tourism as the leading tourism authority in the region, will administer and manage the Blue Mountains Visitor Economy Revitalisation Project, a two-year destination management program that will reinstate the Blue Mountains as a key tourist destination in New South Wales and Australia.